Welcome to Tool Talk from Exegetical Tools, where we discuss hefty resources and helpful practices to help you rightly divide the word of truth. I'm here today with Todd Scasewater, pastor and research fellow for the Center for Christian Social Ethics, also incidentally founder of Exegetical Tools and co-founder of Fontis Press. Scasewater, what's up? I'm doing well. How you doing? I'm I'm doing well, man. Just uh, ready to chat. I'm gonna to gonna talk a little bit about Gearhardus Voss and the Kingdom of God. Now he is not one who I'm super familiar with. I've seen his name. I've I've heard great things. Uh, fill us in a little bit. Uh, why are we talking about Voss today? Yeah, uh, Voss is not known by the wider academic community usually, at least not well, but in the reform community, he's very popular. Um, he, you know, he was born in 1862, died in 1949. So had a really long life and a very fruitful academic career. He, uh, studied at Princeton theological seminary, and then he got a PhD in Arabic studies from the university of Strasbourg. And, um, he came back to, yeah, I mean, he came back to Princeton then and became the first professor of biblical theology. Mm-hmm. And he taught there for a good long time, about four decades, I believe. Um, so while he was there, he wrote quite a few works, and some of them even today, uh, especially in the Reformed community, are really well uh, well liked, well read, still used. And that's because he was really uh, a scholar ahead of his time. He was doing things that were really anticipating things that evangelicals would do later, especially in the, the realm of biblical theology. And looking at uh, the whole of Scripture, moving kind of moving away from systematics, not because it's bad, but because um, biblical theology was on the rise, and it was especially in use at that at, during his day by um, following kind of the Gobbler tradition, which said uh, there's really kind of no organic unity to Scripture. And uh, Voss was kind of instead taking his own route and saying, "No, there is unity to Scripture," and he starts looking at it that way from a biblical theological lens. So he wrote books like The Pauline Eschatology, um, which for him is just kind of a Pauline theology. He wrote his biblical theology, which was actually just kind of his class lectures, and it was published after his death, um, in ni- not till 1948. And so he kind of puts forth his understanding of biblical theology in that book, and that's been still well used and well read by a lot of people today. Um, but earlier in his career, he wrote this book uh, in 1903. He wrote this, uh, The Teaching of Jesus Concerning the Kingdom of God and the Church. And that's a very important book for several reasons, but uh, we'll get to that soon. So I'm, I'm hearing you talking just a little bit about kind of the genesis of biblical theology. Um, and, and maybe that's unfair, but at least as a modern category, thinking through those things. Um, I just heard a fantastic lecture from... Uh, Andreas Kostenberger about the differences between biblical and systematic theology, but just lay it out for us. How would you define the difference? Oh man, uh, put you on the well, spot with that. Yeah, that, one that's is a good really and one question. is bad. Is that the answer? Uh, yes, yes. And the one that you like is good, <laughs> and the other one is bad. Well, uh, I'll, I'll say there's a lot of different definitions, um, and even my own definition is continuously evolving because. Really, the word itself, it has so many different meanings that you can't say this is biblical theology, or if you do say that, you're really just slapping a term on something to give it a term. So um, maybe that's, some people would say that's pretty pessimistic, but I would say that a lot of people do different things, and then they just say they're doing biblical theology. So the word itself doesn't really have a whole lot of meaning, but probably the 
the Voss's meaning, um, Gerhardus Voss's meaning, uh, what he would say is that systematic theology draws a circle and biblical theology draws a line. And what he means by that is you take the same biblical data and biblical theology takes this historical chronological line and, and plots the data that way so that the organizational um, feature of biblical theology is time and history. Um, and so he, he does this progressive revelation thing uh, before many people were doing it. And But systematics, he would say, it's not different content. It's actually just a different way of looking at the data. So it's taking all of the data and then looking at it, zooming out and saying, here's the whole picture. So instead of just talking about what a covenant was to Moses in his time and his day for Israel, now we're zooming out and we're saying a covenant from systematic theology is looking at all the covenants together, everything we know about covenants, and then coming up with a definition based on the entirety of Scripture. Uh, I think that's a good starting point for understanding biblical theology as a line rather than a circle. Uh, I think it probably um, has some problems as well. And uh, probably the most common definition of biblical theology today is just looking at Scripture as an organic whole and seeing how the earlier parts relate to the later parts uh, and how the later parts relate to and fulfill the earlier parts. And I think that's a pretty good starting point for understanding what biblical theology is. So tell me this. uh, Do you think that biblical theology is an endeavor that only those who presuppose, believe, hold fast to the conviction that there is a divine author of the scriptures? I mean, do you think that uh, someone who is not a believer— um, or who is uh, just very, very anti-inerrantist, etc., can really do a biblical theology? I mean, how would you trace a theme through the entirety of the canon if you don't necessarily believe that its authors um, are talking about the same thing or that they even could talk about the same thing? Yeah, you could, you could definitely do it, but it would just look – it might look similar, but – the results would be very, very different in application. For example, you could trace the theme of, uh, let's say, the theme of covenant. And if you, if you say there's a divine author, then you say that God has an intention for what covenant is. There's an ideal, maybe a platonic idea, if you will, of, of what a covenant is. And that idea, Augustine might say, is in the mind of God. And then God reveals that in concrete particulars, you know, throughout history. In, in different ways, and we get glimpses throughout of what a covenant is. But ultimately, we're trying to piece it all together and say, um, okay, this covenant harks back to that one, but it also broadens it and fulfills it. So it's interacting with the former. It's expanding the former and fulfilling it, and et cetera, et cetera. And we say, what's God's intention in doing all this? What's he trying to teach us? What's he trying to reveal? Now, if you don't believe in a divine author, you can do the same thing. But essentially, there will just be no platonic ideal. Uh, there will be no ideal conception of a covenant. There will be no divine intention for what a covenant is and should be. All there will be are the concrete particular instances of covenants in Scripture. And so you have uh, the Abrahamic covenant. And when Scripture refers back to the Abrahamic covenant, doing biblical theology without the divine author would just mean, how is a later author interpreting and interacting with that previous passage. And then how do authors after that look back on the two of them and interact with that? And so it's just a chain of interaction with previous texts and authors. 
And I think that's in a way why it often goes in the postmodern route because there's really no nothing to anchor that. Um, you can try to anchor it in authorial and human authorial intention, but if you do that, uh, you, that starts getting fuzzy quickly because of all the, the challenges to the idea of a singular, definitive authorial intention. And so often, with without the grounding of God and his intention, um, the other way you can go with it is the postmodern route, and it just becomes basically what we call intertextuality, which is kind of this dialogue back and forth between different texts as they interact with each other, and the meaning informs the meaning of other uh, texts, and soon enough you lose all grounding, and texts are just informing texts, informing texts, etc., in an infinite chain, so that meaning becomes infinite, and when meaning becomes infinite in that sense, without any sort of grounding, um, you know, it kind of becomes a free-for-all. So I think that doing biblical theology that way will look similar in the methods employed, in the way you're looking at texts and how they relate to each other, but the results and in, in the presuppositions behind it will be very different. So Voss, Voss is seeing this as a unified whole. He sees a divine author here. He's uh, adamantly believing in that and doing some of that. Um, but his study in the kingdom of God, I mean, is more, I mean, how does he approach that? He's He's got... Is he limited to synoptics? Is he talking about synoptics and John? Uh, how does he come at it? Yeah, well, this this is a really important book that he writes. Um, just to give you a, um, a hint, I mean, I, I could be overblowing this, but, you know, I read Ladd in seminary, his New Testament theology, and then eventually his uh, Presence of the Future, I believe it's called, but his larger work on the inaugurated eschatology. And prior to Ladd, you know, he... he Lad interacts with Voss just a little bit, and but between them, like there's not a huge push for inaugurated eschatology, and Voss uh, really exposited this idea of a present and a future kingdom way before Lad ever popularized it. So this book is very important. He looks at the he uses the synoptics, and he he looks at John as well. But this book is essentially um, looking for the most part at the synoptics, at the teachings of Jesus. Um, so this focuses on the kingdom of God and the church, but the book is called The Teaching of Jesus Concerning the Kingdom of God and the Church. So it's Jesus' teaching explicitly, and uh, he works through a lot of the, the classic texts, like Matthew twelve twenty eight, you know, um, and the passage in Luke about the kingdom being within us or, you know, among us. And he works through those classic texts, but he's also interacting especially with the classical liberals from the late 19th century, and he's trying to um, talk about the kingdom as being the power of God expressed through the Spirit and through the church. So it's something that's happening in the world, rather than this classical liberal conception of the kingdom as being something that happens uh, within the hearts of men as they express brotherly love toward one another. So uh, I've heard this put in terms of uh, spatial versus, and I know different authors are going to put it differently, but um, versus like activity. So uh, where versus, so where is the kingdom of God? Is that the question? Or what is happening in the kingdom of God? Is that the question? And I know probably most authors are going to come somewhere uh, to a little bit of a both and there. Do you see yep. any of that in Voss? I mean, so would he be saying then this is less about 
where it's less about in what realm, although that's obviously, you know, a part of it you're saying here in the church, but more about activity. Would he stress that? Uh, I think he stresses both and throughout. Uh, he has at the beginning of one of his chapters, he talks about the words for kingdom, um, in, in Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. And he talks about how they can refer to both a rule and a realm. Um, and then he, he's really, he, you know, in Lad, he Lad really distinguishes the kingdom from the church um, almost completely, and he has a chapter talking about how the reformers kind of equated the kingdom with the church, and he criticizes that, and he says, no, it's God's activity in the world. Uh, it's not, you know, confined to a region. Voss, on the other hand, has a little more um, nuanced position, and, you know, I would say maybe... A little confusing in the way he puts it. Um, you know, he, he talks about the church as being a part of the kingdom. Um, not He doesn't equate them directly, but he says things like this, like on page 77 of the Fontis version, he, uh, he says, the kingdom, uh, the kingdom as the church bears the features of a community of men. It appears as a house. Uh, this character belonged to the Old Testament church for which that of Jesus is substituted. It also finds expression in, in its very name, Ecclesia, etc. So he talks about the kingdom as the church. And, and this is in the, he has a chapter called The Kingdom and the Church where he's trying to um, lay out the relationship. So he, ha- he sees the kingdom as expressed through the church and even to some extent the church as the kingdom but only because he defines the kingdom as being an expression of God's saving righteousness. So for Voss, the kingdom is expressed most fully in the church through believers. Uh, and then you also have to remember he has a, he's a Presbyterian, so he's got more um, that uh, more reformed covenantal view of the church as well. Corpus so for him, it's... it's yeah, so so for him it's a it is a both and and I would recommend people read the chapter on the kingdom and the church by Voss and and compare that with what Lad does with it and then uh, compare it with your own views of of how you and and just try to wrestle with it and he makes some good exegetical points throughout this chapter but in the end I you know I, I've read it several times and I I'm still not entirely certain on his position it's not entirely clear to me and even in the introduction. By Danny Ollinger, um, he talks about how there's a little bit of confusion on that point as well. So if I had to pin you down then, what what do you think is the most helpful aspect of Voss's treatment here? As far as the entire book or as far as the church? Uh, the, the entire book, just his understanding of Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God and the church. What is maybe the, the most helpful insight he brings to the table? Yeah, I think the most helpful insight is that he's uh, his exposition of the kingdom as present and future, and especially because he's so near, uh, he's interacting directly with classical liberals, and that's something that uh, Ladd in the 70s in his New Testament theology was still uh, interacting with, these classical liberals. But just the fact that he exposits this back in 1903, and he does it very concisely, he does it in a way that's, you know, it's, it's quick. It's to the point. It's all, the whole book's only a hundred pages. 
So to be able to read through this, I think it's an excellent introduction to the kingdom of God in the teaching of Jesus. And if I were teaching a class on New Testament theology or on, on the kingdom or something like that, this would definitely be one of the books that I would recommend, if, if not only for its concision. And so I think I also hear you saying not just its actual content, but as a model of doing good biblical theology. Maybe a little less, a little more reserved. Probably the fact that you couldn't you couldn't take away his point uh, might make it not as much of a model. Well, that one chapter is a, a little could use a little clarification, but I would say I would say it's not exactly a model for biblical theology because this was actually first published in a series uh, about the teaching of Jesus, and so it's the teaching of Jesus concerning, and then they had a bunch of different books that just tackled different subjects. So I would say that if he were to exposit his idea of the kingdom, he might have done it, you know, in a more academic way. He might have done it in a less concise way. But he was writing this for a series that was geared toward laymen. And so in that sense, it's pretty clear what he's arguing throughout the book. It's And it's concise. Um, for a model of biblical theology, you could go to his biblical theology. Uh, unfortunately, that book ends... Uh, I believe it's after the temptation of Jesus. I believe that's as far as it gets. Um, and so you're kind of like, oh, I wanted I wanted him to finish out the, the rest of the Gospels at least, and then the New Testament. But to, to see that, you kind of have to read the kingdom of God concerning the church to get his New Testament theology of the Gospels. And then you can read his Pauline eschatology to get his biblical theology of Paul. And so uh, this, this book's pretty important for filling that gap that is left at the end of biblical theology as well. We are, we are reconstructing the historical Voss right now. Is that what we're, yes. we're getting a little bit yes. of redaction criticism? That's good. That's good. Yes. Okay, so you mentioned the introduction from Danny Ollander. That's that's in this new version, Fontis Press. Uh, I won't I won't make you plug all of that. I'll plug for you. But uh, the basically an arm, the publishing arm of Exegetical Tools, you co-founded with Cliff Cavittle. You guys are, are working partly, you know, Fontis being source, right, partly to – to republish old works. Is that, is that kind of what's going on here? That's yeah, that's one of the goals of what we're doing. And we have several series kind of planned right now that we'd like to, um, curate really good resources for readers so that they don't have to, you know, there's, there's so many old works that are public domain that you can reprint. And so many of those are still useful today for various reasons. This Voss book is one of them. Um, there's, you know, patristic works and things like that that we're looking at. So that's one of the intentions is to remember the heritage of Christian thought. What's the other intention? Uh, to advance Christian thought. There you go. So we're that's looking, a concise we're looking, little mission statement. That's good. Yes, to advance Christian thought and remember its heritage. Uh, that's kind of our mission statement. And so um, this book's getting at that one. And then for the, you know, advancing Christian thought, we're really building on what we've been doing with exegetical tools, and so we're trying to focus on exegesis and languages, especially. That's kind of our niche, and we we know that if we produce works in that area that people will be very interested in those. They'll find them helpful. So we're trying to build on, on what we've been doing, and we have several works um, that are being created right now that will be focusing on language. We have the James Commentary by Varner that focuses on the Greek text, and um, we have several other works coming up as well. So I know that that uh, commentary from James Varner was uh, pretty well received. I mean, it seems like, uh, I mean, he's he's known for being a fantastic Greek 
uh, exegete. And so are there more, more works like that being planned? At the moment, we don't have more commentaries um, contracted, but we do have um, we, one of the bigger works we do have coming up is a, a discourse analysis of the New Testament writings. So that is a work that will um, focus on the, the text of the New Testament plus the Greek uh, by applying discourse analysis to it. That's, that's going to be a massive book that covers every single New Testament writing. Uh, I think there, there's 20-plus contributors. It's, it's very large and very unwieldy. So uh, we hope to, to get that out in about another um, maybe 15 months, 18 months. But it's a very large project. And I think that's going to be um, maybe one of the bigger works that we're going to put out over the next few years. Exciting stuff. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about this course analysis in an upcoming episode um, or maybe a previous episode, deciding uh, depending on how we decide to publish this, right? Um, so uh, you either already know or you can deduce. Uh, no, that's true. But that's just how it works. Um, so so this is this is good. This is helpful. Uh, Danny Ollinger, what, what does he do? What did he contribute to this introduction? Yeah, Danny Ollinger is someone who would, you know might be known in the Presbyterian world. He is known, but if you're in the Presbyterian world, you might know him. He's the general secretary of the Committee on Christian Education for the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC. We don't get so, cool titles like that in the SBC. I know, man. It's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty weak. Yeah. They won't even call well, us reverend, man. Sorry, well, you keep can going. be on the committee. You can be on the committee for committees, though. Mm, you could you might, be on. You that. could even be the chairman for committees on committees. But that is <laughs> anyway the, the uh, committee on the potluck committee. There, there you go. That's my committee. So That's where I'm at. Ollinger, Ollinger edited. Um, he edited this volume, a Gearhardus Voss anthology. Um, but it was put out by PNR in 2015. So that's got just. You know, different writings by Voss because he has a lot of shorter writings, and there's another edited volume with Voss's writings as well. But Hollinger's actually working on a, a biography for Voss right now, and this introductory essay will be—I don't know if it'll be verbatim uh, part of that biography, but it—you know—it might or might be edited. But he had published this introduction on online for an OPC thing. And when I found it, you know, I thought I was looking for someone to write an introduction for this book. And I just I read it and I thought it was just great because it starts out with a personal kind of biographical view of Voss and his family life and what it was like for him to uh, start teaching at Princeton. And it's got it's got fun little stories uh, that you learn a little bit about Voss as a person. And when you get a, a peek into someone's personal life as a scholar, you can kind of um, read their academic work a little, with a little more interest, a little more knowledge on you kind of understand the person. If you can understand the person, you can understand their intention a little better as they're writing. Um, but the, the cool thing about this introduction is uh, the first half is biographical. The second part focuses on this, on the teaching of Jesus concerning the kingdom of God and the church. And what he does is he, he works through kind of the main thesis, his main points, and then he goes through kind of all the criticisms uh, or all the reviews of the positive reviews, the negative ones. And he, um, he pulls together, you know, a lot of different reviews. And even at one point, uh, Voss reviews his own book. <laughs> so I did not know that. And when I read this introduction, I thought that was pretty funny. Was his review positive so, or negative? 
it it was uh very vanilla mm-hmm. it was um i don't Safe i can't remember off i i wrote a i wrote a blog post on this on exegetical tools and i'm forgetting right now why he wrote it but check I it people. That maybe it'll be linked i think that it'll be linked yes it should be but i think what happened was remembers to do that <laughs> i think what happened was w uh his book was republished and then I think he wrote a review in the Westminster Journal or something like that uh, to review his own book because it was being republished. And he basically just summarized the thesis of the book and the main points and, and didn't, you know, didn't say anything good or bad about it. And it was just a very bland review, but a very uh, gutsy move to review your own book. So pretty well done. Anyway, that's that's the contribution that Ollinger makes to this book is. Um, he tells you how this book's been received, why it's important, summarizes the main points, and gives you that insight into Voss's personal life that makes this book uh, much more pleasurable to read. That's good, yeah. Kevin DeYoung recently mentioned it as, a, as something to check out. He apparently thinks it's worthwhile. Um, so all of our Presbyterian friends have already uh, already Googled this by this point. Um, <laughs> convince, convince, just for fun. Just let, let's let's have fun. We, we're both. We're both Baptists. We're low church guys here. Obviously, very much indebted um, to a lot of our Presbyterian Reform friends, even our Anglican friends, from whom we have sprung. Um, so, at least in my uh, my view. Um, so, you know, I I could be debating another on podcast that. episode. Could, there. Yeah, where did Baptists come from? I don't think that's within our purview, but you know, um, but we do a lot of I things outside not. of our purview. So, so, so let let's have a little fun here. <sighs> We talked about his view a little bit of the church just being, you know, it's a lot easier to to view this assembly, uh, this ecclesia in the New Testament as being basically identical, although, you know, slightly different um, to the Old Testament ecclesia. You know, that's one thing I've noticed in Protestant Reform guys or Presbyterian Reform guys of uh, just referring to the Old Testament church and, and not really having any any qualms about that whatsoever. Why would a Baptist, uh, we already know why a Baptist would disagree with Voss on some of that, but what can a Baptist gain to understand or to, to, to at least have something fun to debate with by reading Voss's work here? Hmm. I'm putting you on the spot, man. You got this. You are, you are. That's, that's a hard question. Um, I think, you know, first of all, the common ground is is large that uh, Baptists, Presbyterians, Anglicans, Low Church, High Church, everyone can appreciate what Voss is doing with the kingdom here. They can all appreciate um, the the idea that the kingdom is present here and now through the the saving power of God and His righteousness as it's manifest in the earth. Now, Voss does have in his chapter on the kingdom of the church, he does have uh, quite a bit of discussion on. Uh, Matthew 16 and the uh, the rock passage, you know, Peter being the rock. And I think that's a good section for anybody to read and interact with because it's uh, that's a tough passage. And I, you know, recently researched that passage just a little bit, not, not extensively, but enough to kind of get an idea of the different views and the different problems. And I was pretty surprised how complex uh, the views were and how, how much was out there on it. So he's got a good section on this. And the idea that the church itself is 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 the, the kingdom in some sense. I think that's another thing that everyone will want to wrestle with, Baptist or not. Um, in what sense is the church part of the kingdom? I was teaching a 
course, uh, well, not a course, but I was teaching, you know, a class at our church on the kingdom. And as I was going through it and talking about how the kingdom is, uh, you know, like Matthew twelve twenty eight, uh, if it's by the spirit of God that I cast out demons and the kingdom of God has come upon you. So the idea of the kingdom being expressed when God's power through the spirit is being expressed here on the earth. That's an expression of God's kingdom. It's present among them. So it's this external activity of God. Uh, and I had someone say, well, I've always been taught that the, the, the church is the kingdom of God. And is that, but this, that doesn't seem to be true, uh, based on these passages. And I said, well, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's a good observation. You know, we have these passages directly in scripture and you're looking at them and you're saying that doesn't really fit with what I've been taught growing up. And I think that there's a temptation often in low churches like our traditions to kind of teach based on what we've been taught our whole lives or what we learned growing up in church and not to always take it back specifically to exegesis. And I think that's something that higher churches tend to do a little better is they tend to be more um, able in the exegetical category than um, um, than lower church traditions can be often because of ordination requirements and things like that. So uh, wrestling with what Voss says exegetically will be a blessing to everyone who reads him. That's good. You, you took a very... Uh... A very moderate middle ground approach there, man. I, I you know, you could you could have just been uh, vicious. So that was very mm. diplomatic of you, very kind of you, and I agree with you. I agree. With you. Um, no, that's fun. I, I, f- I find that really interesting, and I think that's a good example. Um, the Peter's confession is a good example of really making sure our exegesis is what's informing our theology, um, and you know, not not to say that. Any particular view on that passage is going to dictate the whole of your ecclesiology, right? Um, but that we're constantly coming back to this and not just saying, well, this is what I was taught, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I think that's helpful. Um, I think that people are going to enjoy checking that out, thinking over these things, especially those that are more biblical theologians, a little bit more theology-minded. Um, but I really hope also that they will check out this book from Voss just for uh, the way he understands the scriptures and exposits it. I think that can be really helpful. What's a particular passage of scripture that you've been dwelling on here lately related or uh, unrelated? You always, you always hit me with that. I hit everyone with that. Don't you listen to the podcast? Yeah. I, well, you know, I do and I forget <laughs> now. Um, right now, actually I'm in um, different. Uh, I do a, daily reading plan with four different sections. So, uh, depending on, uh, what book it has me in, I'm, you know, enjoying different things. But right now, um, I actually just finished Romans eight and, um, then actually this morning on Facebook, you know, it has those little memory things that pop up and it popped up a memory from five years ago where I had, um, pasted, copied and pasted, you know, uh, shared the Romans eight, uh, 38 and 39, uh, just the promise that, uh, God, we can't ever be separated from God's love. And as I think about that in relation to the kingdom of God, uh, I think about how that's both encouraging and enabling because, uh, I, I, you know, I can live a life that goes through my routine and I can get done what I need to get done and I can go home and be a, a father and a husband and just kind of go through those things. 
or I can really lean into the love of God and take chances and, and try to do things positively for the kingdom that will advance the kingdom. And uh, about nine months ago, you know, I did something that I just kind of leaned into God's love and took a chance to do something. And nine months later, I saw it bear fruit. And it was really cool to see that um, sometimes when you take chances, it seems like a waste of time and nothing comes of it. And other times uh, you just realize like God's love, I'll never be separated from it. And he's extended such permanent love to me. And so I can go out of my way to extend that to others. And you take a risk and you take a chance. Maybe you put yourself in physical danger um, to do that, but you're trusting in the love of God. And sometimes that bears great fruit and you're doing great things for the kingdom and uh, you're spreading the power of the spirit in this world, which is advancing the kingdom of God. So uh, that's that's what's been kind of on my heart lately as I've been reading scripture. Amen. That's good. Uh, always a pleasure, Todd. Thanks, man. All right. Thanks a lot, Travis. Mm-hmm.